Hello and welcome back to What Do You Know For Sure podcast with me, Anne Hughes. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Rona Morrison as we talk about her book, I Don't Talk To Dead Bodies. Now, this is not one about psychic. This is a conversation about Rona, her life, her retired now, but her job as a consultant forensic psychiatrist, and actually about how we see other human beings and the world. It's really fascinating, and especially when I consider some of the conversations I've had recently, and particularly with Natalie a few episodes ago, talking about prisoners and trauma, and about how we just think that they're not us, but actually they are us because we have more in common than divides us and yeah this is a really good conversation and of course there's a book at the other side of it if you want to go and purchase that too enjoy Rona thank you so much for joining me on the podcast thank you for having me tell us a wee bit about you so I'm Dr Rona Morrison I'm a retired consultant forensic psychiatrist, that's quite a mouthful, and I now have an art business called Rona Morrison Art, and I've recently written a book, which is out on the 15th of this month, so there's a lot going on. But I live in central Scotland, um, was widowed four years ago, and I've got two children who are six foot three sort of size, so yeah, bigger than me. <laughs> Great, and I have heard about your book, I Don't Talk to Dead Bodies, The Curious Encounters of a, a forensic psychiatrist. So I'm threatening this is maybe what we're going to be talking about. I think you've got lots of interesting stuff in there. But Rona, tell me today, what do you know for sure? What I know for sure is that there are human beings behind the headlines. Mm. What does that mean, I guess? Maybe I should should explain. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people I saw were people with a mental health problem who had committed a crime because of it. So you might get some sort of heading psycho baby killer or something equally awful in the newspaper. And that triggers all sorts of judgments and assumptions by the readers, I guess. My job, I had the privilege of meeting these people who had committed a crime because of mental illness. And I got to know them as individuals, got to hear their story. And my job was to diagnose, treat them and rehabilitate them. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the motivations for writing the book, I Don't Talk to Dead Bodies, is uh, to tackle destigmatization of mental illness yeah. but in that in the process of doing that hopefully I hook the reader in with some bizarre funny scary stories the message is quite clear underneath that actually these are resilient human beings that I wanted to help and to fly the flag for them. Do you know I so resonate with that because I think there is so much othering in our society isn't there even during difficult times like in the pandemic or in financial and you're talking about people and this is conversations I've had with folk well, can they not just take money out of their savings, for example, when you're talking about poverty? And it's like most people are living in poverty don't even know what savings are. Or talking to people that are just having really, really hard times and not recognising that at one point in life they were just like us and then something happened. You know, what happened to you? Or there was maybe a medical thing happened and their trajectory of their life went off. And I always think, that could be me, that could be the people I love that could all of a sudden find themselves. And therefore, we can never think that you're not like me because we're all more alike than we are different, aren't we, Rona? Yes, absolutely. And one of the things in my book is a memoir, so it's about my my story. So it's not what people think, you know, I'm going to sensationalise give you the in-depth on a serial killer mm-hmm. it's not that at all it's about human beings who didn't ask to get ill but also it's about my own family story my own daughter has a mental health problem she's got obsessive compulsive disorder in the book 
uh, spoiler alert, my husband sadly dies and uh, and my reaction to that, etc. So it's about this This happens to my family, you know, things mm. happen to my family. It's not just about me looking after other people who it happens to, you know, it's not about that. It's about the thing that happens to everyone, so just the point you're making. Exactly, because there when you come away and say you're a retired consultant, forensic psychiatrist, Everybody has their image of what that person looks like and what their life is like and the house they stay in and the car they drive and the holidays they go. But actually, none of that matters a damn when your family is actually going through turmoil, doesn't it not? No, absolutely not. We're all we're all in it together. And that's see that that was the privilege I had. And one of the things that started me off on my journey, and I mentioned in the book quite a bit at the beginning, is that my I'm the youngest of three and my elder sister was born with learning difficulties, physical disability, and she in old money was deaf, dumb and blind. And that was that was what we're told. So I couldn't communicate with her. She never spoke to me, she never sat up, she couldn't see me. But I was closer to her than anyone. And the most important thing I learned from her was to value people for who they are and not judge them. And I think that was fundamental to me being able to do the job that I did. Because if you have to deal with someone who's potentially raped a granny or murdered a child or whatever, then if you judge them for the action, you won't be able to see the human being behind it. And my job was to, to see the human being. It didn't get people off with a crime. If something's happened, the public need to be safe and they might be in a secure hospital or in prison or whatever, but they still deserve to be treated as someone's son, brother, daughter, mother, who perhaps didn't ask to get ill. Mm-hmm. Um, and if, if it was your brother or sister, you'd be going, but they're, they're not, they're, they haven't ever been in trouble before. This this has come out of the blue. You need to help them. This is terrible. And you, you know the people that say, throw away the key, lock them up and throw away the key, are the ones who aren't insightful enough to realise it could happen to your family and you wouldn't be saying that if it was your brother. So um, that's what I learned from my sister. Uh And I think, like, I've had a few people on my radio show and on my podcast recently talking about understanding trauma and the impact that has on people, especially within the prison service, that, you know, there is a belief, the stat comes out at about 80%, but, you know, some thinkers believe that it's probably much higher than that of prisoners in prison have experienced childhood traumas. So it's no mistake that they've ended up in prison. It was actually happened at some point. Society failed to protect their their human rights. And as children, they in some way were so damaged that this is what we get out the other end, isn't it? I had the privilege of being a prison psychiatrist for many years. So right. I, I worked in most of the prisons in central Scotland, particularly in the West, Mayo Berlin, Berlin Special Unit, Pullman, Longregend, Glenocal, Contenvale, you know, so I worked in most of them. Contenvale in particular was the main one. And the majority of people I saw had trauma histories, often multiple physical, sexual, emotional, different types of abuse. And it doesn't excuse the behaviour because lots of people who have been abused do not go on to commit a crime or, you know, and live perfectly healthy lives. However, it does kind of explain why some people have ended down a particular route. And rather than judge them, the important thing again is to see, right, what can we do to minimise the impact of this and to help people find a path forward? Sometimes it means that they still have to pay, well, they do have to pay if they've committed a crime. They might be in, in prison, but it might be a wealthy respite from the drugs and alcohol they've been using to cope before, and they might have time to learn some new coping strategies and, and maybe have choices when they come out the other side. So mm-hmm. it was a privilege to work in the prisons too, because I, I was in the, as a prison psychiatrist, you don't just see people who have committed a crime because of mental illness. You just see anyone in the prison who needs to see a psychiatrist. So yeah. you're seeing a whole raft of people, but the, uh, the trauma histories are immense. 
I mean, all I can keep thinking of all the stuff that you've been telling us about the folk that you work with. Where do you think that compassion that you can have when somebody sits down opposite, like you, you alluded to see somebody that's raped a granny or abused a child or whatever, and you think, most of us think, God, I couldn't sit in the same room as that person would be a very natural reaction. Where do you think you found that compassion to be in that space with them and to be able to speak to them and help them unpick what's going on for them? I have a belief that bad behaviour or mental illness, and they're two different things, obviously, but neither of these things define a person. Mm. There's something that's happened, but they don't define them. So I don't ignore them. You know, if someone's got a mental health problem, I have to acknowledge it and treat it. That's my job. But if someone has committed a, a crime, a, you know, the bad behaviour bit you're talking about, then that has to be dealt with in terms of public safety, as I said already. Um, and, the, you know, there'll be the, the consequence in court and, and whatever will, will happen. But the human being, we've just talked about a lot of the people that I've seen who maybe have committed something, some sort of heinous crime. If when you take, you have the privilege of getting beyond the newspaper headline and actually spending hours with the person. And hearing their story and what they've been through doesn't excuse it, but it does kind of explain often how they've ended down a path. So again, it's unpicking it and saying, right, OK, I'm not here to judge. Me. That's the non-judgment thing again with my sister. It's just saying, I'm not judging you. I hear it. We'll deal with that risk, but, but let's deal with the human being and let's try and deal with that. And I think it's, it's the ability to park that bit in order to mm-hmm. see through it and see the person. I think that's, yeah. that, and it's not for everyone. I see in my book, you know, I'm not good with anxious ladies. <laughs> some, someone with schizophrenia and a machete for some reason, um, I feel okay with that and I'm happy to deal with that. It's just horses for courses, isn't it? So mm-hmm. I'm... I was able to do that, so that took me down that path. In a piece of work that I do, I've been speaking about recently about children's human rights and the decla- the UN Declaration of Human Rights for yes, the Child, and reflecting that maybe some parents don't even know that they have human rights. I think a basic human right is that we should all be able to heal, is it not? I don't know if that's one of them on the list, but even if you have done that heinous crime, committed that heinous crime, and you sit in prison, and maybe you're going to be in prison until you die, basically, it doesn't mean that we can't have enough compassion for them to let them go on that journey and to be healed from whatever trauma they've experienced. Has that been a big part of what you've been doing, do you think? I'm, I'm like a bit of a jigsaw, you know. I, mm. I, I'll do my piece, but I, I don't know that I would be doing all of that. But I, I, I think... My book, in some small way, is an attempt to make people who haven't come across this side of things challenge their assumptions. So um, if I can get people to see past the, the labels, then I think that will I'll have, I'll have done my small part towards that, allowing people to heal on, on that journey. If you ever work, because sometimes when you watch, a, say you watch a news story, right, and you find out that somebody, like a teenager, has killed somebody, you know, these things happen, obviously, uh-huh, sadly. Uh-huh. Do I think, how do the parents of the perpetrator of that crime, who gets tried and who's tried in, in media, social media, tabloids, all the rest of it, they get put in jail, they're going to be in jail for the next 20 years, everybody demonises them. And I often think, how do they, that family cope with that? Have you ever dealt with the families of those that have perpetrated crime? Or even in talking to them, the, the prisoners or the people that you've spoken to, about how they heal those relationships because it must be very like I love my people today if it turned out tonight I found out one of them did something heinous it would mean I could instantly stop loving them would it? That's a really difficult position I mean my my role didn't take me down the the route of of dealing with the the families Um, not that I avoided it it just wasn't uh-huh. We didn't come across them because of the where I was seeing the people. When I saw people in the community, that was in prison. But you know, but in the community, I was dealing with 
mentally disordered offenders who may have been in Kirstairs at the start, you know, if it been a serious, serious crime. But when, my work's predominantly in the community. So when people came out into the community, then sadly, a few of them, their families had sort of disowned them. Um, and they, we, we, we almost became their surrogate family. But for those that did have families involved, what we did, we worked on the thing called the, the CPA, the care programme approach, which was basically, I called it good practice written down because it meant all the disciplines, including the family and the, the patient themselves, um, all the disciplines, be it that uh, social work, uh, housing, police, health, uh, drug addiction workers, whoever was involved in the case, we all got together around the table say, with the parents and the and the offender at least twice a year you know for a, a big meeting like that we would see them several times a week sometimes but that we, we'd, we'd see them together and discuss what the issues were if there were any, were any issues about settling in back into the community and, and stigma and all that but most importantly just holistic care so it's not just about tablets and medication it's about making sure the house is okay and not mm-hmm. short of money they're socially integrated do they have any hobbies that we can get them involved in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so we did have that the, the luxury of doing that in the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that depends on whether people want to engage or not. Uh-huh. And see, when you reflect on it, I mean, you've said you're retired now. When you reflect on it, and if my understanding's right, you probably had to just go in and do medicine and then you decided to become a psychiatrist, I'm thinking maybe. Do you think you chose the right career for you? Absolutely. It was kind of by default because mm. I decided to be a medical doctor in order that I could do psychiatry of learning disability. And that was because of my sister. Uh-huh. And when I got to that stage in my career to apply for the specialist training, there were only two jobs in Scotland to do the training and they'd just been taken six months before. Uh-huh. So there were none available and I had to take a job in something. And the forensic job got advertised and I thought, forensic psychiatry because the minute you think forensic you think autopsies csi uh-huh. scenes of crime and i'm thinking because we didn't get to, to train in forensic then so i'm thinking talking to dead bodies what's, what's all that about <laughs> and uh, that's where the title came from from my book i don't talk to dead bodies because i had to explain that often the forensic means to do with crime and the courts so my tutor at the time sent me off to the state hospital at Carstairs and said go there for a week and find out what forensic's about and I went to Ber- they took me to Berlin and they took me up to Inverness prison and and I saw all these people that were in the daily records had charged with murder and whatnot and I just thought I'm basically nosy it was really interesting and uh, and so I, I decided to apply and I got the job so it was kind of by default but actually it's turned out to be a good default because I really enjoyed it and I think I did find my calling I think you just sometimes you just hit the right place that uses your own attributes well and I think that the, the ability not to judge people was kind of crucial so I think that it suited me fine and it's so lovely that you can be so non-judgmental because I, I like to think I'm not overly judgy you know people do their things I'm very liberal people do what they want to do and all that but I don't know that I could be as unjudgmental as as you are do you know do, where do you think that came from um, I think I think it was to, it started with my sister, sister. I, I definitely did I think just because she didn't have all all her senses or, you know, she wasn't able to talk or whatever. It, it, it didn't affect me at all. I just loved her for who she was. And, and I think it was that unconditional uh, love of just saying, this is a person, I love her, and that's fine. And then, so I just, I think I've always just seen people as being a person, you know, whatever their story. And it's beautiful, that's... isn't it, that you talk about your relationship with your sister who couldn't speak to you, who couldn't see you, and yet it was like such a good relationship in such unconditional love and there's something beautiful that I think we all get wrong about disability in that isn't there oh, absolutely um, I, the, the most important thing is that people achieve their full potential I'm trying to think what it was called now but 
it escapes me at this right this minute, but there was a, a, a while where there was a movement where they were saying that we should we all deserve the same, we should all be treated the same. And whilst I get that, you know, the, the tension is good, but actually sometimes people need different things to make them reach their full potential. So just saying everybody's the same is, is not right, because at one point they were discharging a lot of people from learning disability hospitals because people should live in the community. That was a drive. And whilst I applaud, applaud the, the notion, I think the issue was that sometimes people were put out into houses in the community. They'd been taught how to bath themselves, how to shop or whatever, but no one had taught them to remind themselves to do it every week or to go when the shops were open. And actually some to, to, to live a normal life, in quotes, um, in the community, sometimes people need extra support yeah. to make sure they get the best and achieve the best. And so um, I think sometimes people don't think through the practicalities of these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, and But I think everybody can achieve. It's just what support we need. And the people I dealt with, some of them were potentially risky in the community. So we had to put in a lot of checks and balances in the community to make sure that they stayed well and kept out of trouble, yeah. but had a bit of life. So, yeah, I think it's horses for courses. Again, it's that kind of, you need to be in the right path with the right support to achieve your best, I think. Yeah. And that's, that's whether you've got a mental health problem or not. Mm-hmm. So your book, I Don't Talk to Dead Bodies, by yourself, I... Dr Rhoda Morrison, that is just out. We are talking literally days after the launch of the book. Has this been a really exciting thing to have processed, to have gone through and to have written down and words and put it out in the bookshelves. It's been incredibly exciting. Initially, it was a legacy thing just for the kids, and then, then I thought actually maybe I could do some good. Maybe I could, you know, share a message that actually has an impact a bit wider than than my family. So mm-hmm. yes, the book came out on the fifteenth of this month, and uh, I think I've sold over five hundred copies already. So there's a few Wonderful. people getting the message, so that's fantastic. So that's quite exciting. I think that I get a sense that perhaps yes, I could have a bit of impact um so so that's nice uh-huh so and it's lovely isn't it that you've retired for your job and you've become an author and an artist yes that's true uh-huh. i didn't mean to start an art business either but i've gone back to my passion so i've oh, done that great great i'll wish you so well with it if people do want to buy the book rona how can they do that probably the easiest is, is, is online sales somewhere like amazon although most of the the big bookshops you can order it online in there as well thank you so much for joining me on the podcast And thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Hello and thank you for joining me on this episode of What Do You Know For Sure podcast. If you would like to connect with me, you can do that across social media by searching and Hughes Ignite. If I refer to my radio show and the podcast, you can catch those on my Mixcloud. Again, just searching and Hughes Ignite. And if you or anybody you know want to answer this question with me, please do get in touch. Just go onto my website, anhughesignite.co.uk and fill in the contact page at the bottom and I'll be delighted to have this conversation with you too. Thank you.